hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I have an exclusive edition of the McCullough Report this week, focusing on what are the differences from vial to vial in these vaccines. Why are some people getting sick with injections of one vial and then not getting sick with injections of another vial? We had heard about the VAERS reports not being equally distributed across the different batches or the different lots of COVID-19 vaccines. Initially, the batches were quite small. So the batches had in them uh, potentially more contaminants as they came out of these big vats. The vaccines went through steps of working with naked DNA to produce the code for the messenger RNA, the messenger RNA then being loaded on lipid nanoparticles and then in suspension and then into vials. And this process uh, generated batches as, you know, batches could be uh, from a, a few liters at first or a few hundreds of liters to ultimately thousands of liters. So small batches, we learned, actually had uh, small metallic fragments in it because they came off through the manufacturing process, just enough to cause magnetism. And remember all these videos of uh, people getting a shot and then having some metal stick to the arm? That was real because the batches were small and there was a small micro amount of magnetic material that went into the human body. I think that's well recognized. I do find it interesting that all these videos of magnetism have gone away. We just haven't seen it in the last few years because I imagine the batch sizes are sufficiently large. The dilution of the magnetic material is, is now so great that it doesn't cause significant magnetism. But that should be disturbing, that we shouldn't have products injected into us that cause magnetism that don't have a full disclosure of what is in the um, products. And this came out, uh, you may have remembered this, uh, this came out in the December 7th U.S. Senate testimony when Dr. Renata Moon, who's a pediatrician formerly at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, discussed what the package insert looks like for the messenger RNA vaccines. So a few months ago, I, I looked at the package insert. I pulled it from the box of mRNA product. And, you know, it was sealed just like I'm showing you here. I, I unsealed the box that the entire thing came in. And then I pulled this out. And this is what it looks like. So I'd like to show this to you. It is, sorry about that. It's, um, it's blank. On Boom. Eyes. And there it, it is. It says intentionally blank on it. That's the data that pharmacists and physicians are basing on giving the injections outside of mainstream media recommendations. There it is right there. Here's a good question. Why didn't they just print that on a piece of paper the size of a postage stamp? Why all the theater of folding it up into a great big piece of paper like, like that? Why? That's, 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 that's what's passing for informed consent. Right. So how am I to get informed consent to parents when I have, this is what I have. I have a government that's telling me that I have to say safe and effective. And if I don't, my license is at threat. Um, how am I to give informed consent to patients? 
We're seeing an uptick in myocarditis. We're seeing an uptick in adverse reactions. We have trusted these regulatory agencies, I have, for my entire career up until now. Something is extremely wrong. Well, you heard it there. That was um, pediatrician, academic, academic physician, Renata Moon, formerly at Washington University in St. Louis. And the uh, male voice that you heard, that was David Gortler, former FDA official, now pharmacovigilance consultant. Uh, and you heard Senator Ron Johnson. These were historic hearings. And it brings to light the issue of what's in these vaccines. Why wouldn't we question What's in the COVID-19 vaccines? Uh, three, uh, two-thirds of the world have taken one of these shots. So for this issue, I've asked Kevin McKernan to come on the show, and we give a highly technical review of his analysis of the vaccines. But I wanted you to hear firsthand, what did McKernan tell the FDA at the June 15th meeting uh, this was the 182nd meeting of vaccines and related biological products for the FDA, where the FDA officials are there. Everyone's online. This is viewable to the public. I gave the link in this in the show notes. It comes up at, I believe, uh, four hours, 58 minutes, and 40 seconds into the meeting. So I basically you know, sped to the key part of the meeting so you can hear this. Why don't you just take a listen to what the FDA heard, and you can go to this part and see the slides of McKernan's presentation. Now, in my interview with him, he's going to lay this out uh, in great detail, but let's have a listen. Um, thank you, uh, Master Ford, um, for your presentation. Next is Master Kevin McKernan. Thank you. I have no conflicts to disclose. Um, I have 25 years of experience in the genomic space. Uh, I've worked as a team leader of R&D at the Human Genome Project at Whitehead and MIT, and I have over 57,000 citations to publications uh, in my space uh, and multiple patents on, on PCR and sequencing. Um, next slide, please. No conflicts. Next slide. Uh, in February, I used mRNA vaccines as a spike in control for some RNA sequencing libraries, and to my shock, discovered that the expression vectors for the vaccines are still in the vials. Uh, I looked at this in over a dozen vials, uh, and it appears that this expression vector is above the EMA guidelines and the FDA guidelines. Uh, you can see this in this preprint that's described here. Next slide. As a, as a refresher, there's two different processes that have been discussed in this BMJ article. The clinical trials were run on process one, which uses in vitro transcription off of synthetic DNA, but they switched to process two for a scale-up, which used E. coli to amplify plasmids, and those plasmids are what still remain in the vials, and we're not within the clinical trial. Next slide. Uh, this is another depiction of this process. You can see getting plasmids out of these E. coli is, is a challenge and can sometimes lead to residual plasmids inside the vaccines. Next slide. Uh, these are the expression vectors that we discovered on the left in the Pfizer vaccines. They also exist in the Moderna vaccines, but they're a little bit different. The Pfizer vaccines specifically have this SV40 promoter, which was not disclosed in the expression vector map that was given to the FDA, uh, or I'm sorry, the EMA. But the expression uh, vector has a 344 base pair promoter with a nuclear localization signal known as this SV40 promoter. Next slide. Uh, so we went to verify this by designing quantitative PCR assays that target the spike sequence and the vector sequence. Uh, next slide. 
Uh, and this work demonstrated that uh, with even a 1 to 100 dilutions, you could get CTs of 22 for the DNA that's in these vials for the vector, which is not part of uh, what should be in these vials. Uh, we did this in triplicate across eight vials. It's very consistent, and they are over the EMA and the FDA's uh, limits. Next slide. The EMA has a ratiometric limit that looks at RNA to DNA ratios, and you can measure, you should expect an 11.5 CT offset between the spike and between the vector. What we see is only five to seven CT difference, which means there's an 18 to 70 fold over the limit of the 330 nanogram per milligram uh, recommended by the EMA. Next slide. Uh, you can readily uh, assay this in any other lab around the world now. If you put these vaccines directly into quantitative PCR, you can get CTs as low as 17. Uh, this is very important to know because COVID was diagnosed with CTs less than 40, which is over a million fold higher uh, contamination being injected than what you might get from a nasal swab. Next slide. Uh, we know these vials, uh, were, these vials were sent to us anonymously in the mail, so we do not have the cold chain. However, we can measure the RNA integrity by putting them on electrophoresis systems, and we do not see a substantial difference in the RNA integrity from the vials that we received versus what's been published about these in the past. Next, uh, next slide. Uh, various people on Twitter have now begun to, re to reproduce this. Uh, in addition, I'd point to the EMA's documentation uh, where they have an 815-fold variance across 10 lots uh, of double-stranded DNA contamination uh, documented in the EMA process. Uh, next slide. Now, there are some risks to this. There is double-stranded DNA can create interferon responses, and Keith Pettin at the FDA has done great work demonstrating the risks of DNA integration into the genome if these things are in, in, in vaccines. Next slide. The call to action here is all of these primer sequences are now public and people are downloading them and trying to reproduce this work. You can reproduce this work in 60 minutes with a microliter of the vaccine, which is one three hundredth of a dose for less than $10. I encourage everyone to try and do this to understand what we have at foot. I will note we did not measure any of the bad lots that are in the Schmeling et al. paper that demonstrated high adverse events in certain lots. We were measuring what seemed to be normal lots. Next slide. Thank you for your time and consideration. Great. Thank you so much, Mr. McKernan. For your I mean, that is basically a technical bombshell that was just exploded at the FDA meeting. You think about that. He's saying that that is nearly 70-fold higher DNA contamination in these products that would be acceptable at regulatory uh, conventions for an RNA product. He's also said that SV40, simian virus 40, which is a known tumor cancer promoting sequence is in the vials. There are the full simian virus genetic code, that's not there, but the what's called the enhancer and the promoter are there. The enhancer and promoters actually, if there are proto-oncogenes in the human genome, Theoretically, these can now come into cells and then turn on cancer genes in any recipient of the vaccine if the cancer genes are present. So this is really, really important. Uh, McKernan's clear on this. The DNA is for sure in these vials. And he, he said he picked normal vials. They weren't high in terms of their pathogenicity. There's nothing to suggest that these were loaded vials in any way. These were just normal average vials of the products. Now he's referencing his preprint manuscript, which I did link to the um, show notes here, and you need to take a look at it. That is the reference 
he quickly cites other labs all over the world that have confirmed his findings. But I'm telling you on the McCullough Report, this issue, I've interviewed the top expert. He's just given his testimony at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. All the officials were there. When you review the tape, they're all there. They now understand that Pfizer and Moderna are contaminated with DNA far above the levels that we would ever consider acceptable. The DNA is coming off of the E. coli. They're using E. coli to crank out DNA for which they can anneal uh, uh, base pairs of nucleotides to make the messenger RNA. That's how they're making the messenger RNA from an E. coli code that's inserted there. E. coli is a bacteria. They have to mass produce this. In the step where the E. coli is is cranking out the DNA code for Pfizer and Moderna, and they're different code. Remember, they have a patent dispute right now between them. Moderna is suing Pfizer. As they produce the, you know, the proprietary code in the E. coli, that DNA comes off. They make the RNA, uh, which is a mirror image of the DNA, and that becomes the messenger RNA product. They have to take steps to dissolve the DNA and to wash it so it doesn't contaminate the RNA product. If there's sufficient DNA in the RNA product, the DNA has a free pass. It goes right into the cell in a circular form called a plasmid. This is the great concern. So if you take an injection, the messenger RNA is supposed to have its own method of getting into cells. Uh, in theory, stays outside the nucleus and it just produces a spike protein. But there are, if there are fragments of DNA and they're coding for other things, for instance, the simian virus 40 or SV40 code, which is a known cancer-promoting code, if that is there and McKernan is telling the FDA that indeed that's there, that is getting uh, uh, into cells in a, a the circular plasmid format, which is a ready format to come into cells the circle breaks open and then it comes into the nucleus of cells and then it will find the areas in the human chromosomes where there are proto-oncogenes or cancer-promoting sequences and turn them on. This is very important. We'll turn them on. Uh, in cancer, there is always uh, a theoretical construct that is called a multi-hit hypothesis that it's not just one thing that promotes cancer, it's multiple hits. So in this case, the multi-hit hypothesis of messenger RNA vaccines is as follows. One takes an injection of the vaccine. The simian virus 40 promoter and promoters and enhancers go into cells and turn on proto-oncogenes. That's one hit. The next hit is that fragments of RNA... Uh, uh, can influence gene promoters and gene inhibitors within the human uh, genome. But most importantly, the messenger RNA can put a thermodynamic stress on the cells and begin to impair DNA repair. So even if we had SV40 installed, the body should have half a chance of repairing that. DNA repair is inhibited by the strain of the vaccine on cellular physiology. And I've published that with 
Dr. Anthony Karagakoulos and and from Greece, and you can find that in prior versions of the McCullough Report, as well as in the National Library of Medicine and PubMed. The final hit, which was one of the first discoveries, was by Singh and Singh from University of Pittsburgh, where they described using modeling that the S2 segment of the spike protein would inhibit the tumor suppressor proteins systems uh, P53 and BRCA, BRCA. P53 is a tumor suppressor system over common uh, solid organ tumors like uh, lung cancer, kidney cancer, melanoma. BRCA is a tumor suppressor system for breast cancer, uh, uterine, ovarian cancer, female reproductive cancers. And, and people know this. Women with breast cancer can get a BRCA gene. There's a BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene test. So when you get that test, BRCA is not a cancer gene per se. It's actually a tumor suppressor gene. So if one has BRCA, for instance, they really have an impairment in tumor suppression of breast cancers and female reproductive cancers. Same thing, if one has a P53 mutation, they have an impairment of tumor uh, suppression. So if one is getting injections of messenger RNA and they're getting lots of spike protein in the body, and the spike protein has an S1 and an S2 segment. And by the way, you don't get the S2 segment with the natural infection. You get only the S1 segment, but you get lots of S2 segment with the vaccines. Now with the vaccines, there's a third hit. And the third hit is the impairment of tumor suppression. And importantly, if one already has a mutation here, or a weakness in tumor suppression, now that tumor suppressor system is even further weakened. So in summary, there's at least three cancer-promoting hits of COVID-19 vaccination that have been brought to light now in the last several months or years. Hit number one is that messenger RNA vaccines, in specifically Pfizer, which is the most widely used one, widely used one beyond a shadow of a doubt, and this interview breaks the news to you, contains SV40 enhancers and promoters, which are known to be cancer-promoting. That's number one. Number two, the strain of the vaccines on the system impair DNA repair, general repair of DNA, housekeeping of DNA, that can allow cancer genes to go basically remain in the genome and not be edited out. And then the third hit is that the S2 segment of the spike protein inhibits the P53 and BRCA tumor suppressor system. So I submit to you that the COVID-19 vaccines have fulfilled this very, very uh, worrisome uh, and scary specter of being cancer-promoting injections. And cancer rates are up all over the world. There's no debate about that. The issue is what's causing it. And we now have two-thirds of the world that have taken one or more injections of COVID-19 vaccines. And the vast majority took genetic or messenger RNA vaccines. And those are the ones that we have the greatest concern about. So let's get on with this uh, very, very important issue of the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. 
World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Have you had COVID-19 recently or have suffered a vaccine injury syndrome? You know, all of these conditions are metabolic, catabolic strains on the body. The body has increased needs for essential micronutrients and minerals. And the GI tract may not be functioning completely normally in terms of absorption. The solution, Healthy Cell. Healthy Cell has an entire product line using MicroJo technologies. So these are in liquid gel packs that you simply uh, rip open and a quick squirt and you've got everything you need in terms of nutrients. The product lines are the Immune Super Boost, the uh, Focus in Memory, and my favorite, the REM Sleep Supplement for an ideal night's sleep. Try them out. Go to HealthyCell.com and enter in out loud for a discount on your first purchase. Oh, or go on our platform, America Out Loud Talk Radio, and click on the banner bar, Healthy Cell, to get your discount on your first boxes of uh, Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, your host for America About Talk Radio, McCullough Report, and Courageous Discourse. I've been waiting for this interview forever because he's so busy. Uh, he's all over social media. He is the talk of what's going on, all things COVID vaccines, Kevin McKernan. Kevin's joining us from Beverly, Massachusetts. And Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on Courageous Discourse. Why don't we start out by you giving a quick introduction of who you are and what you're doing up there, and then we'll move into the topic. Okay, excellent. Thank you for having me. I appreciate everything you've been doing in the field, Dr. McCullough. Uh, so I got my um, my background started at Emory University working on radioactive sequencing as an undergrad, and that landed me a job on the Human Genome Project up at MIT with Eric Lander and Trevor Hawkins. Uh, shortly into that um, program, they asked me to run the research and development team there, which was about a nine-person team that built the robotics and the sequencing pipeline to sequence the human genome. And in around 2000, I spun that company, uh, spun a company out with some of that technology called Agincourt, which um, eventually got acquired by Beckman Coulter for some of the um, virus isolation kits and PCR tools that we had. Right. Uh, we also spun out a second company that built a DNA sequencer known as a solid sequencer, which went to market under LifeTex and, and Applied Biosystems brand. They, okay. they purchased that company. So um, did some clinical sequencing as well for epilepsy, mitochondrial disease, and, and autism spectrum disorder and a company after that. And, and then shortly that led me into the path of sequencing plants, um, cannabis in particular, because it was having impact in epilepsy. And then I stumbled into um, sequencing these vaccines somewhat accidentally. So a long, a long history of doing PCR and sequencing is, uh, is my background wrapped up in a nutshell. Okay. Very good. So 
tell us about the study at hand. You know, your paper on the preprint server, which is the right thing. Get the data out there. Let people take a look at it. Um, explain the context that led to you deciding to analyze the vials. Well, a few years ago, we were we were studying um, how these vaccines were made and how the spike protein might be different in the vaccine than it might be from the virus. Uh, and that led a lot of people to sending some of these vials to me. I, and I never had, I just threw in the freezer because I really couldn't justify sequencing them until we had a project in the company sequencing, looking for some viroids that are infecting the cannabis plant. And it wasn't that the experiment wasn't working very well. So we decided to spike some RNAs into it to troubleshoot what was going on. And I had those in the freezer. So threw them in, didn't expect much to come of it other than it to sort out our problem. Uh, but lo and behold, once we got the sequencing back, we saw that the plasmids that they used to manufacture these uh, mRNAs were still in the vial. Uh, and that was something um, I hadn't planned for. I didn't know how to properly communicate this to the field. I knew peer review would take forever. Uh, and so I just started putting substacks out in a, in a preprint, and then and then all of the um, protocols that one could use to try to validate this. Um, and we even built PCR kits and sent them to various researchers around the world to replicate the results, which which has actually occurred now. So it's great timing that you've had me on because uh, many others have now. Two other labs have already reproduced some of this work and have also seen DNA contamination uh, that are in these vials. Okay, can you? Um... Give us an outline of the manufacturing steps and explain to a layperson why some DNA would end up in a vial of messenger RNA, just the manufacturing. Okay, so yeah, they um, the way that they make mRNA is they use a DNA template and an RNA polymerase to make RNA off of that DNA. They ran the trial off of synthetic DNA, uh, and uh, they had about 44,000 people in that trial. Uh, and uh, they switched after the trial for scale up to what was known as process two, which used DNA that they could put into an E. coli cell and have the E. coli manufacture the DNA for them. Oh. And it's known as a plasmid. Um, they did a very small study of about 252 people comparing the two different manufacturing methods. It wasn't large enough to really perhaps pick up adverse events that we might be seeing currently. But they need this DNA to be copied to high number because it is the template for making the mRNA. And if you start with very small amounts of that DNA, you're not going to get a lot of mRNA. So they want to build fermenters of this stuff so they can make, you know, grams to kilograms of this DNA so they can then make the RNA from the DNA. Well, how is it changed? Yeah, but Kevin, how did they ahead. do it originally? Was it just naked DNA and some type of prep? Or? Yes, yes. It's not hard to synthesize DNA. Um, we can call up a company like IDT and they'll synthesize DNA for you of a certain size. However, it's okay. more expensive and uh, it ends. you have to kind of keep refreshing that chemical synthesis over and over again. However, once you get this DNA cloned into a plasmid, you can put it in E. coli and it's pretty much immortalized. You can then just grow that E. coli over and over again to produce more DNA. So it's a much more affordable process. Right. So a plasmid, explain that. Is That's a special form of DNA. Is that right? It is. It, it brings in more DNA. So they probably initially in the trial only had the DNA encoding the spike protein. But to get E. coli to harbor this and replicate it, they right. have to add an antibiotic resistance gene and a couple other promoters uh, so, that the, so that the bacteria knows how to copy this and survive. So this antibiotic resistance gene is needed so that the, you add antibiotics to the growth and only the E. coli that have the plasmid will survive the antibiotics. This is a form of selection that ensures that the E. coli are always copying this plasmid on the, in the process of replication. They divide every 30 minutes and overnight, you can get a billion fold amplification of these things. Okay, so g- give us an idea. So SARS-CoV-2, the virus, the virus itself, how 
many base pairs is the code for the spike protein in the virus? In the virus, it's about uh, 4,284 is the length of the spike protein, 4,284 bases. And that's the same inside of the vaccine, that the, the region that they have coding for the spike. They, they did change it. They put some codon optimization in it. So the sequences are actually quite different, but they are the same length. Same uh, length. The only thing that's added in the, in the vaccine is they have another about 3,000 bases of this plasmid backbone that contains some DNA elements in there that we're a little bit concerned about because they weren't disclosed and they have some other functionality to them. Right, so let's just take, okay, so the the 4,200 base pairs in the SARS-CoV-2 virus for the spike protein. Now we have the plasmid that they're using to put the genetic code into E. coli to make the messenger RNA at high levels. How many base pairs is in the plasmid all in, including the promoter and the antibiotic resistance? Uh, 7180. I think it's 7180 is about the right, about right size. Okay. Um, so uh, 7,810 7, 7, is what we measured with our sequencing. Uh, okay. We're probably missing about 14 bases of, of one region of it. That's hard to sequence, the poly-A tail. But it's uh, Pfizer reported the very similar plasmid map to the EMA. That was about 14 bases longer than ours. However, they did not disclose uh, one particular element in there that's controversial, which is the SV40 promoter, the SV40 origin, and the SV40 um, enhancer. Right. So let, we'll get to that in a minute. So I just want to get these fundamentals down. Now, the code, the let's just take Pfizer code for the messenger RNA. You said it's not identical to the virus uh, because there no, has no, to it's, it, yeah, they they change the um the codons on on the sequence. So what you can do with sequence is change. Uh, you know the the codon uh, table is degenerate, meaning that the third base in each codon can change, mm -hmm. uh, and they optimize those uh, to be more human compatible, if you will. Uh, so it's only about seventy five or eighty percent identical between Moderna and Pfizer back to the Wuhan spike protein. So the sequence That's, is in fact different. Yeah. So th that was my understanding. There was a paper that caught my attention by. Um, I believe Nunez Castillo from Florida Inter International, and and they had hypothesized that that there was, in a sense, a humanization of uh, Pfizer Moderna. So human ribosomes would probably read it better, but some of the codes, and obviously Pfizer Moderna have their own proprietary codes, and different. You're right. Moderna's suing Pfizer, right, for copying, but but we don't know, or at least a layperson like me doesn't know the the um, the code. But what this paper hypothesized is that the code that's there, uh, in a sense, humanizes the spike protein a little bit. And that's worrisome because that's a setup for autoimmunity. That, that was, in a sense, the 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 just there's there's other things yeah there's other things that can happen when you change the um if you code on optimize it for humans um I, I think this is a bit of a fallacy the virus already did that it optimized the codons so that it can replicate okay. in humans uh, yes but they they went ahead and optimized it further which means the ribosomes will read it at a different rate and it can actually fold differently as a protein so you can't oh, guarantee okay. the same protein folding um, so they went and did this, and there's a, there's a great paper out there from uh, Postnikova, which shows that if you codon optimize even just the furin cleavage site, you end up getting different folding of the spike protein. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I think this was actually a little bit hubristic for them to go and do this and, and not measure whether the protein folding changed by, by changing the codon optimization. The virus probably found the optimal codon usage so it didn't uh, grow right. too quickly or harm the host. Uh, right. But they so, wanted to do that. So spike protein uh, code, uh, folding, 
uh, that's different. Certainly means could be different manifestations of various types of illnesses. You know, extreme folding creates amyloid uh, structures. Um, but but folding also means exposure of different sites for the body to react to from an immune system perspective. And, and we still don't have very, very good uh, information from them on what the protein products are coming off these vaccines. They've shown us some Western blots that are the wrong size of bands on gels. And there's there's a whole story called Blotgate that kind of covers how that has not been properly um, mm -hmm. uh, surveyed. And they haven't really provided mass spec sequencing evidence of the of the proteins that come off of these modified RNAs. So there's a whole other question mark there as to what, what is the translational fidelity of these modified RNAs? Okay. So, Kevin, I'm a cardiologist. I can prescribe, um, let's say, Inclinzeran. Uh, I can uh, prescribe small interfering RNAs that can actually shut down production of a protein. They're available to me medicinally. Right. There must be quality control levels to not allow DNA fragments at a certain number to get into these vials. There are. Uh, you've hit on two points there. One, when you code and optimize things, you have to reconsider the whole RNA interference pathway because now you've got different sequences, but let's not go there. Um, they are, there are um, some regulations on, I should say guidelines that we have from the WHO, from the EMA, and from the FDA. And uh, they're a little bit different, but 10 nanograms per dose seems to be what the FDA and the WHO suggest uh, you shouldn't be above. Both of the vaccines we've measured are above that number of DNA. The, the reason they have made these legislations, I'd point you to a paper from um, Keith Pedden at the FDA, is that when you inject double-stranded DNA, there's a, there is a propensity at a low frequency for this DNA to integrate into the genome. And so it can be oncogenic if you have too much of this DNA around. Um, the second issue is it can be prothrombotic, according to some papers, and it can also trigger an interferon response and act like an adjuvant. So uh, they want the, D the DNA levels in the past and vaccines were down in the picogram levels. And over time, the pharmaceutical industry has lobbied to push them into the 10 nanogram level. Now, the European Medicine Agency has a slightly different metric. It has a metric that's a ratio metric metric, metric which is how much DNA to RNA as a ratio can you have? And they wanted it to be about one DNA molecule per 3,030 3, RNA molecules. Uh, and by those measures, the vaccines are over somewhere between 18 to 70 fold over that limit. When we measure them with RT-PCR, there's just uh, there's too too much DNA compared to RNA in the shots, and they would not pass the EMA standards. Now, the EMA has documented this and asked Pfizer to clean this up. There are um, some records that have come out through a leak that shows that the EMA asking for more information on the step that cleans up the DNA. That's a step known as using a DNAase, which is an enzyme that eats up this DNA, and it seems to be faulty in, in, the, in their process at the moment. Wow. And uh, do you think this is a product of rushing to market with these new methods? I think it's a combination of speed and liability waivers. Uh, there really isn't a penalty for having dirty vaccines. Uh, the, that penalty gets socialized amongst the sick patients that uh, sadly get hit with these things. Uh, and they have the government purchasing all of these. So you've got guaranteed demand. Uh, you have no liability or recourse if there's a mistake. And of course, there was a, a rush to market. And as you're well aware, they were doing their best to keep any alternative treatment and early treatment out of the, out of the picture. So uh, I think a combination of those forces uh, led them to have uh, a very sloppy vaccine manufacturing process. Wow. Okay, let's talk about how many vials you analyze, what manufacturers... And then what's the library of DNA that you found in these vials? So we started with the bivalent vaccines, two from Moderna and two from Pfizer. 
Uh, we then went and replicated that in eight different vials of monovalent Pfizer vaccines. We have not sequenced the monovalent um, Moderna vaccines, just haven't had any access to them. Uh, we also sequenced the J&J vaccine and put that public. So all of this data is public. Uh, and, and the preprint will point to that data. We've also put the plasmids uh, sequences that we discovered in Moderna and Pfizer into NCBI. So anyone who is sequencing um, tissues from long vax patients will hopefully run into that if they come across uh, sequencing information that ma matches these vaccines. Uh, so that, that's what we have done to date. Now, other people have taken some of these vials. Uh, there is a, a gentleman called Dr. Sin Lee in uh, Milford Molecular Diagnostics who received vaccine from us and sequenced, uh, did some, some Sanger sequencing of amplicons he generated and confirmed that it's also in the vials. That didn't quantitate it, but it showed that the primers we're using are on target and then he was able to replicate um, the amplification. Another gentleman, Dr. Uh, Philip um, Buckholtz, also had access to vaccines from his clinic and he has performed uh, QPCR with reagents that we sent him and has seen very similar CT levels that we've seen. He, by his calculations, there's 500 million to a billion of these molecules in every in every dose, 500 microliter dose, um, which is similar to, to the numbers that, that we've come up with. His were a little bit lower than ours, but still in the ballpark. Um, so it's been it's been independently replicated now at multiple places that there is DNA contamination in these vials. Now, I will say the vials we have are expired, so we don't really have, um, uh, you know, we don't have access to fresh files. However, DNA doesn't really degrade very much. Uh, and particularly the tools that we're using, uh, we can measure the degradation when they come in the door. There's a, an RNA integrity score that you can collect from them, which is what mm -hmm. Pfizer uses. And we know that our vials aren't heavily degraded just by running that assay. Um, quantitative but, but, PCR but Kevin, is even, very even if, they, even if they were, it'd just be worse, right? It even would, yes. The, the RNA would probably degrade faster than DNA. So, um, but uh, these RNAs don't degrade very quickly. They're in, they're packaged in lipid nanoparticles, which are resistant to nucleases, and they have a new a, a modification in the RNA that makes RNAs uh, slow down chewing them up. So, uh, they're very stable uh, molecules. Right. Okay. So let's uh, describe the library of these DNA fragments that you found in the vials? So the um, they are fragmented, as best we can tell. Uh, we performed DNA sequencing on them, and what we, could, what we found in there were some elements, at least in the Pfizer vaccine, that seemed to be superfluous and unneeded. They have an SV40 origin of replication, an SV40 promoter, and an SV40 uh, 72 base pair enhancer element in there. Those are um, tools. Now, I want to be clear, this isn't the whole SV40 virus. A lot of people have taken that story and run with it. The SV40 virus is notorious in the vaccine field because it contaminated the polio vaccines. And there's a long debate in the clinical literature as to whether that caused cancer or not. Um, so, uh, but what we do have are parts of that virus that um, the biotech field has used quite commonly in plasmids to drive really aggressive gene expression. And the concern is that these things will move to the nucleus. Uh, we know that the SV40 enhancer in particular is used by, like David Dean has some wonderful work showing that's a really potent tool for gene therapy because it moves DNA into the nucleus and makes it more amenable to, to, um, to integration into the genome. We don't have evidence of integration yet. All we know is that it has these elements in it, and these elements uh, certainly increase the chance of integration, particularly based on the long debate we've had in the field. I, th I know you've cited Marcus Alden's work where he looked for reverse mm -hmm. transcript on these, uh, on these mRNAs. And of course he found some of it. They contested that work because it was in cancer cell lines. Now uh, you don't need reverse transcriptase if you're injecting everybody with billions of molecules of these DNAs. Um, they're, gonna, they're already DNA, they can readily integrate at that stage. 
Um, we did some additional work to see if this stuff was packaged in the LNPs or outside of the LNPs. You can throw in a nuclease like DNAse, and it doesn't change the CT scores on the vaccine, which means the DNA is protected by the LNPs and is inside the actual LNPs. Oh, that further enhances the likelihood that this will get into the nucleus. Also enhances the likelihood it's going everywhere too. So it's, it's, yes, in, it's, it's traveling. Molecule. So, so let's talk about um, simian virus uh, 40 and the promoter and the enhancer that you found. So it's not the whole virus, but the promoter enhancer are, and each one of those in the library, are they intact? Do you think they're, they're kind of viable as, as a gene? Yes, promoter, I, think, for instance? I, I think they are because the, um, there's, there's a couple pieces of evidence for this. So this, the simian, the SG40 virus is like 4,243 bases long. So it's a, it's a fairly big DNA circular virus. Uh, but the pieces that we're looking at are only 466 bases in total. That's if you include the, uh, there's a fourth piece in there called the SV40 poly A signal. But the, the actual promoter origin and um, enhancer are about 300 or so bases long. Dr. Sin Lee has already demonstrated he can amplify 363 base pair pieces of DNA out of the vaccine and sequence them. So the fragment size seems to be large enough so that it can code an intact origin, promoter, and enhancer. Now the origin is a is a DNA sequence that attracts a DNA polymerase, but it needs the the um the large tumor antigen from SV40 to open up and perform that operation. So it's unlikely that it's going to replicate DNA in patients that don't have a T antigen. However, 22 to 20 percent of the population is believed to be infected with SV40 from either the polio vaccine or just um, from natural background. Uh, which means they may have T antigen already natively present, which could initiate replication of that DNA uh, from the SV40 origin. Um, the second piece is the promoter. The promoter is a bidirectional promoter that drive that recruits an RNA polymerase, so that drives RNA transcription. And the reason they have this in there is to, is to turn on a gene that gives it canamycin resistance. But it's somewhat unnecessary because they already have an ampicillin R promoter in there, just like Moderna. Moderna used an AMP R promoter, and they don't have an SV40. But Pfizer has both, so it's the SV41 seems to be uh, unnecessary. Um, and then that third piece is the is the the SV40 and 72 base pair enhancer. That is what uh, David Dean has published on being a really potent tool for for gene therapy. That's what drives the DNA into the nucleus, and they're all right on top of each other. So a piece of that DNA, if that were to get uh, integrated into the genome, it could drive DNA replication and RNA replication wherever it lands. And the concern is it can land in front of a proto-oncogene or something that drives mm -hmm. cancer. Uh, so it's, uh, I, I would not, um, the fragment size, I don't think is a good argument against this. We've already demonstrated there are some large, large enough fragments in there that you could be integrating um, DNA sequences that are quite active in mammalian cell lines. Okay, so for the SV40 promoter enhancer, were they intentional? And you found them, you said, in, in Pfizer, right? Uh, yes, in Pfizer. Were they intentional to try to just jack up production of the gene that's coding for the me Pfizer messenger RNA and E. coli? Was it an intentional Production. No, I, I expect it was it was probably accidental in warp speed. This is a common tool used in mammalian plasmids to express canamycin resistance. And so they probably just didn't think to change it and to, and to remove this before it went to market. Uh, they had oh. they probably got a, a plasmid from someone else who had this a spike protein in it and uh, decided to ramp up with something that had mammalian um, promoters uh, and cassettes in them. Um, they didn't need those to put them into bacteria. The bacteria don't really care about those. They they would prefer to have an amp R promoter, and uh, and they they could have they could have survived as Moderna has by not having this this piece in there. 
Oh, my Lord. Now, you got me worried. Uh, I've looked at my own vaccination record, Kevin, and I grew up in a period of time. My mom was just trying to follow what the pediatrician told her. So she took me back. I think my brothers, too. I've been doubly vaccinated against COVID, uh, against um, uh, against polio. Sorry. Um, uh, I, I think because of either failure of a vaccine or some type of recall. So what exactly happened with with the simian virus and polio. Can you, can you briefly explain? So the manufacturing process back in the 60s uh, required they grow these things in, in live organisms. And those live organisms were, in fact, infected with SV40. Uh, and that's where they believe that the virus came from. Uh, now, there is some debate in the literature that, that SV40 may have predated that, but the vaccination program certainly introduced it to hundreds of millions of more people. Uh, and so the, there's a, a large of swath of that problem. Right. Was it the oral or the injectable? It was or a Sabin. I believe it was a Sabin one. The, 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 I think it was a sugar cube, right? Yeah. Um, so um, now we, we've created quantitative PCR kits that can measure these pieces of DNA. Uh, and that's what a lot of the other researchers have used to verify these results. And we very recently just generated one that targets the SV40 enhancer because we think that's the most likely piece for pathologists to potentially pick up in a genome integration event. Uh, so if there's pathologists out there that want to survey biopsy tissue, semen, blood, what have you, I, I'd recommend maybe going after monocytes because that seems to be where the spike um, picks mm-hmm. up. We can begin looking for this with quantitative PCR tools to understand if any of this DNA is still present uh, and uh, if it's playing a role in uh, in a, any of the long vax cases that you, that we have at hand. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Marcus Alden paper, Yang DeMarinis, senior author, they had chosen a middle part of the code what they call the 444 base pair amplicon, uh, and and my understanding is they chose that because they 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 thought for sure they could use PCR replicate to see if it went into chromatin. Uh, do, do you think it's likely in that study that model, which I don't think has been refuted, it's a human hepatoma cell line? Do, do you think the entire code for Pfizer went into the into the DNA in that case? No, I, I don't think that's happened. Um, only because there's another paper from Rudy Janesh's work, uh, work at the at the, at the Whitehead where they've looked for integration events and they found some from the from the virus. Um, and he's mm-hmm. he's tried to replicate mRNAs to do this. He he didn't have the vaccine at hand, so it's not the perfect model. But when he does see integration events from the virus, they're they're like fourteen hundred bases in size. They're not the full virus, so it's probably it's probably a fragment. Um, but that could be throwing off PCR tests and other diagnostic tools. Right. The wrong so, region. so most of us have gotten the virus, and I'm aware of that. Do you think it's likely that when we get the virus and there's been some, quote, integration events, uh, these fragments, not the full code, but some fragments, do you think the body is able to kind of repair that and edit it out, or is it just unknown? Um, I don't know. I think we need a lot more sequencing surveillance on this problem uh, because it, it's obviously the human genome is loaded with viruses. This is kind of uh, what happens. The the line sign elements and alus, these are like half the genome is, is viral elements and half the, the oh mechanism. Yeah, I think 8% is actually herbs. So the the, the, yeah. um, the mechanism that, that um, Marcus Alden was studying was the fact that some of these endogenous human genome viruses have reverse transcriptase activity. These line one elements are, are what actually are what he believes is, is causing this reverse transcription um, mm-hmm. activity that's moving the RNA into DNA. Now we have to revisit some of that work because he probably wasn't aware that there was DNA present in the background of the vaccines as well. And that may have contributed to some oh, of the PCR signal. Good, good point. Um, good point. So, 
yeah, that that's that still needs needs to be looked at. But you know, Bob Weinberg has a lot of work on this where they they look at how viruses integrate, and they you do tend to find a lot of viral sequences in tumors. And so it it is uh, there, there's a strong connection there between viral integration and uh, and disrupting certain genes. And these integration events they tend to be enriched and enriched in genes that are being actively transcribed. So they don't they don't necessarily land in junk DNA. They tend to land in places that are currently being worked on by the genome. Uh, so there, there, there are some, onco, uh, you know, oncogenic risks here. We just don't know the magnitude. We don't know the frequency yet. Uh, and we don't know necessarily which tissues to be searching in. Uh, right. There is an argument that, hey, maybe it integrates very at a low frequency into epithelial cells that turn over and it doesn't matter. But if this gets to a stem cell or a germ cell, like in sperm, we do know these LMPs are going to the ovaries, uh, mm-hmm. then there is a concern. And uh, I think we should take that seriously as they took the concern of the CRISPR babies a few years ago before the pandemic. They put that guy in jail. He made two CRISPR babies, and they complained about the informed consent process. And that physician went ended up in a in a Chinese jail. Here we are, have injected billions of people with these things, and I don't see a, a whole lot of concern about genome integration anymore, uh, particularly if it hits uh, if we know the LMPs are heading to to the gametes. Right. Well, let's let's take a worst case scenario. What if someone has uh, they're carrying a proto oncogene or an oncogene? You could pick. Um, you know, a myeloid cancer or a solid organ C-MIC or something. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Uh, C-MIC is the one C- that is studied at the FDA. Okay. Yeah. So that would be a standard. And, and, and in theory, you get a dose or let's say seven doses of this. So there's been seven doses where. Um, That's a good point. These, right, these regulations so that, are all about one dose and people are getting many of them and they're right. over the limit on the single dose. Right. So, so they're getting seven, seven times. Doses, over the and there's some SV40 <laughs> enhancer promoter in each one. Is the worst case scenario, there would be enough integration to actually begin the process of oncogenesis and a nascent tumor begin to form? So that's a question I'm still trying to get my head around. I've reached out to some of the researchers that have worked in this field. I think a good reference for those integration events are in Keith Pedden's work at the FDA. This is where they came up with these double-stranded DNA limits, which these vaccines are over. Uh, So they came to those uh, assessing uh, the integration frequency when they do this with actually CMIC. Uh, and so that's that's the best place I can point. No, we haven't done sequencing of, of long vax patients. I think that's in order, uh, is to sequence these patients. Uh, there's, a, there's a method that Rudy Janesh's lab published in Zhang et al. called mm-hmm. TAGMAP, which is a method that's very cheap and on Illumina that transposon bombs a patient's genome to then amplify anything on spike and anything on the transposon. So it finds integration events very cheaply. And then they follow that up with these long read sequencers to really figure out the structure of the integration event, how long it is and what gene it's in. Uh, th- those are the two methods that have, I think, shown the most promise so far in the literature for surveying this, but they've mostly been focused on people infected with the virus. I think that it's time to actually turn around and look at the long vax patients to see what's going on there. Oh, for sure. Now, let's take this final, in the minutes we have left, this clinical observation of what people are terming turbo cancer. So turbo cancer, uh, and I've seen this in my clinical practice, it's either the onset of a newly recognized malignancy in someone who's taken multiple vaccines, and the cancer appears to progress more rapidly than what we'd expect clinically, many times fatal, uh, or the scenario where someone has an existing malignancy or a malignancy that's, quote, in remission, and let's say someone's within a five-year window of initial kind of remission of the cancer, they take multiple injections. Yeah, they take multiple injections and wow, the cancer's back again, rapidly progressive. Is anything we discussed today, could it 
could it explain mechanistically the, these clinical observations we're making? So I, I think there could be a perfect storm going on here where let's say we've increased the DNA integration frequency of these events um, with, with these SV40s. On top of that, we know there's immunosuppression going on. And then we also have seen some evidence that spike protein can shut down BRCA1 and P53, the, the, the genes that are needed to repair this mess. You combine all three of those things, uh, and that could certainly explain why we have these, these tumors that suddenly take off in patients that look like they're in remission. Uh, you've reintroduced new a, a new form of oncogenesis in those tumor cells, and uh, and off they go if the immune system's not 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 there ready to take them down. It, you know, it seems that it hits upon a principle of cancer. A principle of cancer is what they call the multi-hit hypothesis. That it's not just one thing, Kevin. It's like there has to be two or three things that kind of have to hit at once, and that's that's enough to to get going and either produce a new tumor. Or, or reactivate many times in remission, there's still a few cancer cells small. It's, it's interesting you say that because I, I think the treatment side has to do the same as you tend to find only successful treatments if you attack multiple pathways in cancer. It's very hard to take out a cancer with a single drug, just like COVID. You don't try and take it out with a single drug. You have right. to hit it with multiple right. tools at once. Right. That seems to be the approach. And so, wow, I've learned so much on this interview. Uh, Kevin, you're making great progress. Now, can you say a little bit, you've testified at the FDA? Yes, I, I gave a presentation there that I think fell on deaf ears uh, about four minutes. Uh, so you can see that on our Substack, uh, and I've also put some of this into um, affidavits for particular lawyers that are that are looking into um, what they can do to rectify this. Okay. Uh, so that these 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 they deem are adulterated products, and arguably they they classified them as gene therapies because uh, we now have evidence that some of these vials have components in them that are published to be used for gene therapies. Mm -hmm. And is your uh, preprint? Does that have enough cross uh, citation with the others that have found that, or sh should I work additionally to try to get those references alongside yours? Uh, the preprint should have um, Dean et al. in there. If if they're not, there have been some things we've done since the preprint went live um, that have looked at the uh, whether these this DNA is in the LMPs or out of the LMPs. I'd point people to our Substack for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I imagine in, in maybe six months or a year we may have this through peer review uh, with uh, you know some other eyes looking at it. But I, I want to encourage people and let people understand that peer review. 50% of papers that get through peer review don't reproduce themselves. We have already had this reproduction occurring before peer review has occurred. Oh, oh and good, uh, and good the reproduction point. Still really matters. Yeah, good, good point, Kevin. I was, um, but I was benchmarking some of the CDC's publications where they rely on 50% of their citations are preprint server anyway. At this oh, point, I, before yeah. COVID, I never published in the preprint server. I just, you know, I did straight up publication. Uh, and meeting abstracts. Uh, but I think the preprint service have changed everything because it's simply a way to show data and let us see and analyze it ourselves. Um, I tend to not look at the conclusions so strongly. I just want to look at the data and the references. Yeah, that's uh, fair. And I, congr and I also want a lot of people know there's a tremendous bias against any studies that would make people question the vaccines or you know reconsider them in any way. And so you're, obviously your paper and others fall in that category. So it may be a long road to publication, or it may just be at the preprint server level only. Um, it, it, may I, end, it may end up that way. Uh, we're continuing to offer kits out to other researchers that are qualified that want to look at this problem. So we've been manufacturing some of these kits and shipping them out for free so others can try and understand the scope of the problem. And if the demand gets large enough, we'll start kitting them a little bit more professionally. And uh, I, I think there could be 
a use for these with pathologists. If they want to look for the spike protein um, that's in these vaccines, we we can look for this. The, the interesting thing about looking at this at the DNA level is you can discern the spike mRNA from the, the virus's mRNA. That's sometimes difficult to do uh, at the protein level because the proteins are so similar. Oftentimes, people will differentiate long vax from long COVID by looking at nucleocapsid, but that doesn't always show up in every tissue. Uh, the DNA level can discern these things. Uh, so we can, we can detect whether it's come from the vaccine. We can detect which vaccine it's come from because Moderna and Pfizer differ in their ability to have an SV40 amplification event. Um, so um, they, they, these tools may be very helpful in, in trying to track down some of the, the, the problems with long vax. I have a patient I'm referring for a lymph node biopsy right now. Uh, is this something that could be done off of like a tissue sample? Yes. Yeah. You can get, uh, you can just perform a, like a chitin prep on, on one of those tissues and you should be able to amplify it. Anyone who's got a P, some PCR background, uh, there should be plenty of PCR capacity out there post COVID. So um, these things work on, on a cycler. You, you just need at minimum two colors. Uh, we're putting this in uh, FAM and HEX or colors that PCR people will understand. And the SV40 is in Texas red. We have an internal control we're working on known as RNAsP that's in Sci-5. So if you have four-color cycler, you should be able to um, go to town with this in a, in a, from a pathology standpoint. Well, this is fantastic. Kevin McKernan, you are on fire. Uh, there's no one uh, in your league right now. You're doing great work. How can people follow you? How can they subscribe to your Substack, uh, support what's going on, get more information? Uh, so my Substack name isn't the easiest name to remember. Um, so I'll just leave people with, uh, if you know what the compound is in catnip, you'll find it. It's called nepetalactone. <laughs> so nepetalactone newsletter is, uh, I'm a cat fan, sorry, <laughs> but uh, it's named after that. And if you can't find me there, anandamide is the username. That's an endogenous uh, cannabinoid that I study quite a bit. Uh, so those are two two names they'll get to my Substack. And then I'm on Twitter and you can find some of our other work in uh, a company called Medicinal Genomics, where we, we apply a lot of these genomic tools to try and uh, improve the uh, the breeding behind cannabis. Wow, absolutely fantastic. Kevin McKernan, uh, molecular wizard, but uh, I think someone who gets a lot of credit for breaking the story. It sounds for sure that DNA fragments called plasmids are within the vials of Pfizer uh, and Moderna, but only the, the more concerning SV40 uh, promoter enhancer in Pfizer right now, as far as we know. Uh, do you have any final words for our audience? All right. You broke up there for a little bit, but oh, thank you, you for the, uh, for, for the exit. <laughs> okay. Do you have any final words for our audience, Kevin? Well, I would encourage, uh, one thing I'd, I'd love to do is coordinate a lot of these folks that are involved in the medical freedom side of, 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 um, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. They share a lot of the same battle scars with the, with the physicians that are trying to work with cannabinoids. They have been this kind of Dallas buyers club for the last 40 years. And I want those two communities to share notes because, uh, they'll, they'll learn a lot from each other. So if you want to, if you want to learn more about that, we manage a conference called CanMed, which tries to collect those folks. We are seeing cannabinoids play a role in, in treating COVID and treating long vac. So uh, you can find a lot more of the videos online at uh, canmedvideos.com. Uh, okay, terrific. Kevin McKernan, I'll let that be the last word. Thank you for joining us on Thank you. America Out Loud Talk Radio McCullough Report and Courageous Discourse. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, your host. <laughs>